my fellow fallible humans. This is the Red Roof Recovery Show. It's an addiction recovery program to soften the path of recovery from substance and behavioral addictions. And it's not just for addictions. No, it's about life. My name is Tanya McIntyre. I'm here with you every week sharing my experience around my own recovery from drugs and alcohol. My recovery journey started way back in 2009. I checked myself into a rehab facility. And then I spent nine years in 12-step programs. And I wasn't able to sustain my sobriety. I was relapsing every couple of years. And then in 2018, something magical happened. I became a facilitator with something called SMART, Self-Management and Recovery Training. And you can can find out more about SMART on their website, smartrecovery.org. It's a wealth of resources and information. And then I decided to create something called Red Roof Recovery. Not only is it a weekly radio show and podcast, it also provides a unique program for residential recovery. And I also wanted to develop relapse prevention programs because, like a lot of people like me, relapsing can be a challenge sometimes when it comes to sustaining and maintaining abstinence from harmful substances and behaviors. So the Red Roof Recovery Programs, like SMART, are based on evidence-based principles of rational, emotive, and other cognitive behavioral therapies, along with various other tools of therapy. I love to remind everybody that there are hundreds of tools of therapy. The key is to find whatever works for you, and when you find it, grab on with both hands and do more of it, assuming that it's something good for you, of course. On this episode of the Red Roof Recovery Show, I am thrilled to have Serenity Cates joining me. We're going to be talking about Serenity's recovery from addiction. Serenity has experienced trauma, addiction, homelessness, and is now a social work professional working with people who are facing the same struggles and barriers that she faced. Thank you so much for being here, Serenity. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I have to tell you, Serenity, it hasn't been easy getting guests to come on this show to talk about addiction and recovery. So thank you for having that courage. Thank you for having me. It's, it's been a recovery and it takes a while once you get to a place of healing. So I only know a glimpse of your story because we only met recently in Canada's prettiest town of Godridge, (laughs) Ontario on Lake Huron. So when we met, it was an instant connection, probably because we have a lot in common. Although You had courage to do the most important job in the world, being a parent. I did not. I dodged that bullet. (laughs) So not only now are you challenged with um, post-COVID for what it is, now you're dealing with your children and the schools and your job. Yes. Working with people who are now going through what you managed to go through and live through. Very similar stories, and I'm just a fur- little further along in my journey than they are. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your journey. When did it start for you? Um, I was 10, and um, my mother unfortunately abandoned me to homelessness. Um, she moved to a different city um, with her latest boyfriend. She had her own mental health struggles, and I was homeless in the city of Sarnia. Um, 10 years old, you know, no family, no resources. So I actually turned to substance use to survive. I was homeless for eight months before I turned to substance use as a coping mechanism to deal with the harsh realities of homelessness. I can't even imagine what it must be like to be 10 years old 
and not have a safe place mm-hmm. to go to. It was tough. And, and my peers and, and the streets became my safe place. As it does for a lot of people. You know, talking about peer pressure, um, that's pretty much how mine began too, right? We become yeah. the company we keep. Yep. And when I was going around in the late 70s, early 80s, it was quite common to come across cocaine yep. among certain social circles. Yep. So every party I went to and the people I was hanging around, they were all sniffing coke. Yep, absolutely. Just same. like it was an appetizer. Yeah, same substance of choice. Living in a border city, it was very easy to come by. And and the only saving grace is that back then our drugs were quote unquote clean. Hmm. Yeah, I think I'm just lucky yeah. that another bullet dodged for me there that I often say to people, you know, I could have just as easily had a boyfriend, a group of friends who were shooting heroin. And even though I'm adverse to needles, if I had a boyfriend saying, no, no, I'll do it. It feels really good. It's worth it. Yeah. I could just as easily have have become addicted to heroin. And And it was a slippery slope and I've, I've done it all, you know, and, and it was whatever was readily available and, and inexpensive and what you could trade for sex work and, and those sort of things. So Mm -hmm. It was, it was the whole gamut of, of abuse. How did you get out of that? Um, there's many, many different catalysts, as, you, as we talked about. Um, again, relapse is part of recovery. And the main one that sticks out for me is um, a gentleman had come and put $20 in my cup. And at that time, I was facing suicidal ideation. Um, I had a plan. I was happy. I was ready to go. I was kind of at peace. And I feel the universe kind of works in mysterious ways. And, and he sat down and he treated me as a human being. He treated me with compassion. He believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. And really made me feel like I was better than my situation. And the catalyst, you know, physically, you know, your body wears and, and the abuse. But I really realized that it was an, a problem when I couldn't physically or mentally cope without using, without using. The pain was just too unbearable. Mm-hmm. Are you comfortable talking about the drugs that you were using? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I definitely used cocaine. I used acid. I used heroin, used needles, used anything and everything readily available to me. So we talk about, uh, I know in recovery circles, and as much as I dislike this term, hitting bottom, right? Because everybody's bottom is different. Yep. And And even uh, people, my peer group now who are in recovery, sometimes when, you know, we're sharing stories and it's supposed to be confidential, but, you know, when you're in certain circles, people get to know you. And then I'm told that, uh, well, you were kind of what we call a high bottom drunk, you weren't really, yeah, you know, that bad. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a slippery slope to go down because if you start believing that you weren't that bad, mm-hmm. I mean, I watched my mother spiral in her addictions and yeah. I used to compare myself to her saying, yep. I'll never be that bad. It'll never get that bad. It'll I don't have that, that horrendous story. I didn't kill somebody drunk driving. You're not an addict. I've, I've heard it all. And from close friends and family, yeah. you weren't that bad. What, what do you mean that bad? What's you know, bad? What's, what's bottom? What's bad? What's mm-hmm. bottom? And for everybody, it's absolutely different. You know, some people, it's being in a merge of being in a coma. And some people, it's losing their kids. And it's so individualized that it's not fair. And that's part of the stigma, too. People believe, you know, certain things about certain people and that it's just a blanket effect across the board. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, that's where the humanity comes in and getting to know someone's story and getting to know where they're at and, 
you know, some people can handle sickness better than others. Some people can't handle a cold. And it's, it's so individualized that the blanket is, is what people go to because they don't really want to know. Right. Dr. Gabor Matte, one of my favorite uh, Canadian doctors. Yep. <laughs> and of course, he's now doing the whole speaker circuit in, yep. in addiction recovery. And he's starting to do work now with uh, Dr. Dick Schwartz. Yes. And I love listening to Dr. Schwartz talk about the internal family systems, which yes. he developed from his practice as a family therapist. And he started to recognize that when people were coming to him in a family dynamic, that the same things were going on inside of each of us, yep. right? Like, part of us really wants to kill that person, right? <laughs> right? right? <Yeah. laughs> part of me really does. And he said, we all have an internal family system inside of us. Yep. And the more I'm around people who are struggling with mental health disorders, I realize that sometimes <laughs> when they are expressing their anger, it's like, well, yeah, I feel... There's a, there's a piece of me in there. There's part of me in there, too, that's internalizing that dialogue. Like, I want to kill you. Yep, absolutely. But they're just externalizing the voices. Yep, and we all have that. We all have that inner piece that just strikes that chord and, you know, that rage comes out. But, again, I love, I'm, again, on the same page with um, Matei and, and with the trauma. That's a big piece of it. I know for my recovery, that was a huge reason why I was self-medicating was mm -hmm. because I did have mental health. I did have PTSD at the time. Um, the sexual abuse for me began at three years old. So at three years old, you can't you can't even begin to fathom those like those deep seated ingrained trauma. And I, I believe that's a huge reason for substance use. Well, Dr. Gabor Matte did say that. He said the common thread, I mean, he spent about a dozen years in Vancouver's east side, yeah. which is the most chronically addicted population, I think, in North America. Yeah, it's unbelievable to see. Yeah. And he said the most common thing that he heard among people who were addicted, it didn't matter what they were addicted to, yep. was that there was some kind of trauma normally associated with childhood yep. trauma. And I, I see that a lot with my folks that I'm supporting now mm -hmm. is, is that that's a common thread. And, you know, we tend to use substances to numb the pain, to numb what's going on in our mind, to numb our physical pain. So, so it just makes sense, you know, that you use substance to try and cope with something physically or surgery or something, and it, it spirals out of control because we want out of our own minds. And same with behavioral addictions. I was addicted to anything that made me feel good, anything that could get me out of my mind, whether it was sex, drugs, gambling, gaming, you name it. Those were the pieces that helped me escape my mind because it was too painful. And I, I, was, I didn't know what it was going to do. Mm -hmm. And now with uh, things that have happened in the past couple of years with this pandemic, we're seeing suicide rates, addiction rates triple. Mm -hmm. And never before in any time in history have teenagers have been uh, now chronically affected. Yep. Yep. By... And I see that in my own family. Mm -hmm. um, my children's mental health has decreased. You know, they're more curious about substance. What can I do to get out of my own mind? And unfortunately, with the system the way it is, a lot of the times it's designed to fail for individuals. And the waiting lists are just astronomical. You know, if someone wants to detox, they can go for a couple of days, but the waiting list is six months. And then poverty pay, plays a big part in it, too. Mm -hmm. You know, especially now, you know, with housing crisis and stuff like that. Like, and unfortunately now, um, the drug of choice usually is meth because it is so inexpensive. and It's so deadly. So it, it's kind of everything compounding together. 
and post-pandemic, we're like, we're going to be a long time trying to recover. Absolutely. And lack of affordable housing is uh, those numbers are not increasing no. at all. And I've noticed uh, the rates of inflation are at least 25% Absolutely. now. Yep. And wages are not going up 25%. So where is where are we going to find that balance? I talk a lot, a lot oh. about trying to find um, balance, especially when it comes to taking substances, because we take substances for one of two reasons. We're trying to deaden pain or increase pleasure, mm -hmm. often both. So now we're in a situation where gam oh, gambling addictions, too, are now skyrocketing. And I don't think it's any um, coincidence that social media, and I find myself, too, when I'm trying to shut off this, yep. uh, I call them the ants, the automatic yep. negative thoughts that never shut up. Yep. And I'm scrolling through my phone on social media, and that movement of going up on your phone is uh, the same as the one-armed bandits, right? Yep. It's that repetitive thing, yep. that cycle that feeds those chemicals in Absolutely. our brain. And I often talk about the, the dopamine reward axis that's connect yep. connected with addiction. And it immediately releases the serotonin and it decreases the cortisol that causes the stress hormones. And, and that's the other thing is part of recovery is you have to, you have to know your triggers, you know, and you have to know what's good for you and what safety nets you can have in place. And, you know, that's how I cope is, is being self-aware knowing my triggers, knowing what I can and cannot do, having safety nets in place, like not being, you know, being self-excluded from a casino and not reinstating myself because I know it's a slippery slope. And, you know, I've been clean for many years. I've been sober for a few years and it's still, you're still fighting it. You're still battling, but we do recover, you know, and it is a disease and it needs to be treated as such. How do you feel about the labels? When I when I became involved with SMART, self-management and recovery training, they discouraged the use of labels. And of course, I had been indoctrinated with 12-step programs where you sit in a circle and you say, hi, I'm Tanya, and I'm an alcoholic and an yeah. addict. And it used to feel really heavy for me, especially to say, you know, I've yeah. been clean and sober for however many days. And then when I got to SMART and I started to uh, become more aware yeah. of my thoughts and how powerful our language can be when we're labeling ourselves, yeah. feeding those automatic negative thoughts. So now I love, I still love 12-step groups. I still yep. go to AA meetings and NA yep. meetings because there's more of them. Yeah. And the peer support is yep. very good when you find the right meeting. Yep. And now I am happy to sit in the circle and say, hi, I'm Tanya, and I am grateful to be drug and alcohol free for another yep. day. And everybody stops and looks at me kind of weirdly. But what it does, I think, is opens up a dialogue after For sure. the meeting yep. to say, oh, I noticed that you didn't say that. And then I say, well, you know, I did for nine years and it just didn't make me feel good. It wasn't motivating to me. Yep. And I feel like it's so individualized because mm -hmm. like the first step is admitting. So for a lot of people to say, hi, my name's Serenity. I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. That's huge. That's empowering. That's it almost releases a weight off your shoulder. But I believe there's a time and a place for that because what I you know, feel comfortable in five years going there saying, hey, I'm Serenity, I'm an addict or I'm an alcoholic. I might be in a different place of my recovery, but I feel in the beginning, I think it's imperative to own that, to have that accountability. And I think that's why with the 12-step programs, the first step is like admitting you're powerless. So I think it's really good in the beginning, but I think you can outgrow that for sure. Mm -hmm. I have had a very difficult time with the powerlessness part, but there was no... Uh, denying that powerlessness when I was walking toward a bottle of vodka, 
saying to myself, this is effing insane. Yep. Like, what am I doing as I'm reaching for it? Mm-hmm. So there, I was totally powerless. Yep. And you don't realize you're powerless until you're in that moment. And then on the flip side, on the positive, you know, when I have a really tough day at work, even still, you know, like I can go sit in the liquor store parking lot and I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to beat myself up because I'm sitting in the parking lot. I'm going to celebrate that I didn't walk in. Mm. And recognizing both sides of those, right? Like it's so multifaceted that I think we have to celebrate the wins and celebrate that, okay, that is a step. You know, micro baby steps are important. Absolutely. So one man who took the time to sit with you changed the direction of your life. It was a horrible tasting cup of coffee. Like it was the worst coffee I've ever tasted in my whole life, but it stuck with me this long. And he sat with me in the mud and the slush and he got on my level. He didn't talk at me, you know, he talked with me and just made me feel like I was a valuable human being regardless that, you know, I had marks all up my arm and I was sitting there homeless and had a bottle in my hand. And and he truly changed my life by showing compassion and humanity and understanding that I had a story, not just the chapter you walk in on, you know? Mm. I often wonder when I walk by somebody, I used to walk by somebody in Toronto sleeping on a grate, on a cardboard box mm-hmm. covered in blankets. And it was, you know, I used to go to go to work when it was still dark. And I often wondered um, how it would feel for me to be there and just be ignored by everybody walking by, hearing the footsteps of all but the people walking better by. better than the comments. But what if I stop to say, what, what can I do to help? That's different. So for me personally, it was worse when someone would actually make a comment to me. So if you walk by and ignore me, I can handle that. But don't come up to me and call me names and treat me less than and take pictures with me as you're giving me my only sandwich that I've only eaten for four days. You know, like that was far worse than someone just ignoring me, mm-hmm. letting me be at peace. Wow. Someone would give you a sandwich and want a picture. Mm-hmm. And you see it on social media all the time, all the time that they're doing it, you know, for the accolades. And I've really had to come to terms with that. I don't care what your reason is. I have to focus on what you're doing, which is hard because, you know, I am an advocate and I am fiery and I am passionate about this work and and what I do in people's recovery. And, you know, you want justice. But at the end of the day, the, the meals being provided or, you know, the water's being given out on a hot day. So... It takes a lot of a lot of swallowing, you know, that anger that does come up and it will always come up in in recovery because there's days as, you know, an addict that you're 0 to 100. You know, mm-hmm. there's no really happy median. So, it's it's a learning curve, but it's definitely possible. I am trying to get a pharmacist to come on and have a conversation with me about the methadone program. Okay. Uh no takers yet. Can't can't even get a call returned. So I have never had to rely on a methadone program, uh, but what I do know about them is that uh, they don't work because, you know, basically you've got people lining up at nine o'clock in the morning. It's supposed to be customized to, uh, you know, your weight and your ability to absorb chemicals and all that stuff. But there's really no time for that. It's like Dr. Gabor Mate said, when I had a five-year-old coming in to me complaining about asthma, I didn't have time to ask what's a five-year-old stressed about in life. Yeah. All I could do was give him a puffer, a stress hormone yeah. to treat stress. Yeah. I don't have time to say, why are you as a five-year-old stressed? And, yeah. and I think that's what we're facing now. 
I, I believe part of that is true. Um, again, it is very individualized, but I know for some of the people I support, you know, it's very important that they get their prescription and they get all of this kind of red tape stuff done before they actually go to the clinic. Mm-hmm. But you're right. They're overworked. They're overwhelmed. There's a lot of people that are, you know, trying to utilize these systems. But I think that's where support people come in. I think that's where, you know, peers come in or agencies come in and we try and connect people to those agencies so that they can kind of do that legwork to make sure that they are getting what they need. And that's where the harm reduction comes in. That's where the stigma, you know, we have to battle that stigma that, you know, harm reduction is a positivity. Because I know when I tried to go to rehab very, very briefly, back then they weren't in a harm reduction framework. So it was like, absolutely not. This is abstinence. This is what you're going to do. And this is the end of it. You know, mm-hmm. there was no help there. So I think we're moving forward, especially in Godrich, where we're trying to fight the nimbyism. You yeah. know, but nimbyism I th- being not in my backyard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think you're absolutely right. Like the clinics are overwhelmed because during COVID and, you know, it's just exasperated substance use and mental health. And, the, and they are overwhelmed. So there's no real good solution. But again, that's where people come in and. And we try and provide that wraparound support and, and reach out and join programs like your own. And mm-hmm. Thought was there and now it's gone. <laughs> uh, NIMBYism threw me off because, of course, uh, I have a, the methadone program of Huron County in my backyard. And I love it. So I talk to my neighbors all the time who yeah. are concerned about it and concerned as well that I'm running a recovery program yeah. in my home as well. Um, so that's, again, part of the stigma that's yep. attached to that. And what we, can we do as uh, community members living in a small community that is, you know, programmed by the, the stigma, the yep. misinformation there around addiction and recovery, what can we do? Well, that's where I come in. I feel like my passion is to speak out and tell people my story. And I don't know how many times I've, you know, been on the streets and and there is stigma out there and they are being rude and they are making ignorant comments, you know, and I'll, I'll be like, oh, well, when I was homeless or, you know, I'm a recovering addict or I'm a recovering alcoholic and, and people's face just kind of turn and they're like, you're a registered professional. You've been to college. You have three diplomas. You know, you're a respected member of society. And, and this is where you come from. So stories like my own need to get out there and yourself to say, you know what, it's okay. Like this happens. It's okay to talk about. It's okay to, you know, get on board with this. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it begins with humanity and compassion. You know, that's, that's the first step is understanding everybody has a story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, put yourself in their shoes. Everybody has had bad days and probably yelled at their spouse or their kid. And, you know, how would you feel if I judged you at your weakest moment? Yeah. Right, your most frustrating moment. So it's it's just having those talks and getting the word out there. Well, thanks so much, Serenity, for being brave enough to come and talk to me openly <laughs> about this because it's something I think that uh, we need to talk more about. I mean, it wasn't easy for me to decide to start talking openly right. about my recovery and addictions. And when I started to do the show, I was shocked at the number of people who messaged me to say, are you sure you want to be associated with that? Yep. This could cost you your career. This could cost you your family. Why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. But when you know, you know. And I I feel like it's so important that we do share our success stories. I mean, we all know there's a lot of stories out there that end in death and that people don't recover, but we offer hope. When you treat someone like a human being, there's hope that they can be you know, they can recover and they can move forward. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, experience, strength, and hope, right? Yep. That's what we learn in the 12-step programs. And I love the fact that uh, I often say that AA saved my life and Smart Recovery gave me my life back. I think 12-step programs are the best personal development program on yep. the planet. Yep. It really forces you to reflect and take yeah. inventory. And again, we're moving away from the God and the religious part of these meetings. Oh, I think it, actually, actually Toronto has agnostic AA Yes, <laughs> Yes, which is great because that turns a lot of people off. Yes. But again, if it's, you know, it's called your higher power and whatever that means to you. So I think we are making progress and moving forward. And, and AA is a great way to self-reflect, if nothing else. And you take what you want and leave the rest. But I know for me, it's people's stories. It's walking into the room feeling like I'm home, feeling like I get it, feeling like they have the same sort of brain I do and they understand the compulsion and, and inability to stop. You know, mm -hmm. it's a disorder. It's not... It is know. a brain disorder. It's a mental health disorder. It's a chronic illness, a complex uh, illness for sure. I mean, Absolutely. why I love being aligned with uh, evidence-based programs because science is always evolving. Yep. And we're learning more and more about addiction all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm fascinated by this whole dopamine reward axis. You know, yeah. it's, it's all about uh, maintaining those dopamine levels yep. so we can maintain our motivation. It's all about the maintaining the motivation yep. to continue the work. And the science behind the cortisol kind constantly being in fight or flight. And especially when you're experiencing homelessness, you're mm -hmm. in survival mode. That's that. Yeah. So, so that all, you know, they're starting to realize that it is a chemical imbalance, that there is a reason for this. And people aren't choosing, you know, I want to be, you know, addicted to, to meth. I, you know what I mean? That's not a, a conscious choice that people make. Exactly. So... Serenity Cates, <laughs> you are an amazing Thank human you. being. I am so glad whoever that uh, kind soul was who sat with you in the slushy mud and got you the help you needed when you did. Yeah, I'm, I'm eternally grateful. And, you know, I'm making living amends and, and trying to pay it forward by sharing my story and, and connecting with people like yourself, because I think it's so imperative. You know, we got to stick together, especially in these times. You know, they say the opposite of addiction is connection. Absolutely. Thank you so much. for Thank you for having me. If someone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, probably via email. Okay. Email or... Remind me what that, what that, what that was. Um, it's serenity-now at live.ca. Serenity-now at live.ca. Live yep. Now, was Serenity your birth name? That's correct. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I, I love Serenity. <laughs> uh, it, I don't think there's, it's any coincidence as well that my rehab... Uh, situation, my stay was at Serenity House. Yes, and Serenity <laughs> Now, I don't know if anybody watches Seinfeld, but that was a moment for me. So that's Serenity Now. So my license plates do say Serenity <laughs> Now. <laughs> I love it. Thanks so much, Serenity. So I hope today's ep episode has offered some insights around addiction and recovery and maybe helped open up some possibilities for more introspection and acceptance in your life with your fellow fallible humans as well. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, I would love to hear from you. If you know someone who might qualify for my unique residential recovery program, please email me, redroofrecovery at gmail.com. I've authored a couple of books, and I would love for you to buy them. Mindful Wisdom from My Philosopher Dad, Sage Advice from a Single Father, this was a tribute to my father who raised me as a single dad in the 60s and 70s, no easy task while he was struggling with his own addictions. 
And then during the pandemic, I wrote a second book in his honor, Daily Wisdom from My Philosopher Dad, Some Inspiration to Guide Your Days. And this one I set up as a journal because journaling has been uh, a critical component of my addiction recovery journey. So there's an inspirational saying on every day of the year. And what I'd like you to do is not only buy my books, but I want you to spend some time on this Daily Wisdom book and contemplate the daily message. Be who you are and say what you feel. Mm. You might want to filter that sometimes. <laughs> but there's uh, some introspection to be had there. I find the power of words is extremely powerful. But holy moly, the power of the written word can be life transformational at times. It certainly has been for me. I want to thank you for being here, spending 30 minutes of your day with me. It means a lot. You're an integral part of my recovery journey. Remember to talk to yourself like you talk to your best friends. And may the force be with you. Remember, you are the force.